And Don Lusk told me something really interesting that his wife, Margie, was, who was working in the HR department at the time, which was called the personnel, the uh, personnel department. She was working right under this guy named Hal Adelquist, and he shows up in the book. Hal Adelquist basically became the anti-union witch hunter for the Disney company. He also had been at Art Babbitt's wedding because his wife and Babbitt's wife were best friends. And so they vacationed together. So they had this personal tie. And now he's like trying to like hunt unionists. And when the strike is over, uh, it was rumored that he kept different files for the staff who were once strikers and who were non-strikers. So Don Lusk says, at age 101, he tells me that Margie, his wife, who's deceased, told him that uh, all the per all, all the all the staff were separated in in the files from strikers and non-strikers, and the people, whenever it was time to lay someone off, the people who would for be first to lay be laid off would be the ex-strikers. And I was like, that's 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 interesting, and that's totally something that could be made up. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no way to prove that. Um, and that sounds like something that that people who had been embittered by the strike would start spouting and start to like, you know, smearing the Disney company with. Uh, but it could be true. I had no way of proving it. And I can't put something like that in the book yeah. as as juicy as a detail that might be. There's no way to back that up. But then, but wait, oh, there's more. But <laughs> hold that phone over in the cane maker collection at, at Bope's library. There's, there are a whole bunch of files that John Kaymaker had gotten from Dave Smith back in the seventies. And back then Dave Smith was head of the archives, the Disney archives. And uh, he was a lot more open about what things could be shared. And among them are like 12 or 15 uh, employee evaluations. And they're brutal, like really harsh, <laughs> really nitpicky and like insulting the stat, like their character. And above the photo of each employee is one of two words, striker or non-striker written in pencil. Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week, I sit down with animation historian and the author of my favorite book this year, Mr. Jake S. Friedman. Jake wrote The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. We chat all things about this book, so if you're interested in reading this book, you've been warned of spoilers, read it before you listen. I hope you enjoy the show. Man, Jake S. Friedman, the author of my favorite book of the year, The Disney Revolt, is this week's guest. Jake, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, man. Like I told you, we've been talking, ladies and gentlemen, for about 15, 20 minutes, and I've just been blowing this book. I don't know how much I like this. No joke. This is my favorite book of the year. Um, this is on my second go around because the first time I told you when I was reading it, I had a little bit too much THC. I burnt through it all in the first couple of days. Uh, so I made sure to go back and really put some notes in here. Uh, but the first question that I want to ask you, man, what was the initial story you possibly heard? What was the that's, that can't be true. That can't be real. And then you had to write a book about it. You remember that initial spark or that initial moment that made you want to write this book? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So, by the way, props to you for being the first person I've talked to who's read it more than once already. <laughs> you're, you're the only person I've talked to who's read, except for my editor, who's read The Disney Revolt more than once. And it's only been out since July. So, yes. kudos, kudos. Thank you. Um, so, you asked me why I wanted to write the book. Um, I didn't at first. It was just assigned to me. My mentor, John Culhane, told me I was going to write this book. This was not a request. This was just point blank, you're going to write this book, Jake. Now, John Culhane, some of your, your listeners might know, he wrote the book on Fantasia. He wrote the book on Aladdin, which was one of my first books on animation, 1992, when it came out. Aladdin, the making of an animated film, behind the scenes stories and everything. Really cool stuff. He wrote the book on Fantasia 2000, and he was just... A, a big Disney fan. I met him when he was like in his sixties, he was teaching history of animation at NYU. I loved that, that class. I loved him. And I just, I loved him so much that I just kept sitting in on his class each year. Like I, I wasn't going anywhere. I just loved sitting in on his history of animation class. And a few years after I graduated from, from NYU, he invited me back. And it was then that he told me around 2007 or so, he says, Jake, you're going to write this book. And I'm like, what? So apparently, John Culhane had been in touch with a lady named Barbara Babbitt, who is like in her 80s, this, 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 this Hollywood actress, dancer, you know, now retired, but she was married to Art Babbitt, who was the famous Disney animator, and also he was the strike leader. And she wanted his story told because she realized that he was becoming forgotten. I think there was some sort of event around that time that was honoring Disney animation and, and Art Babbitt's name wasn't mentioned. And she was like, I need his memory uh, retained or else he'll be just like dust in the wind. So she contacted John Colhane and John recommended me. And I was like 26-ish around that time, like totally unqualified <laughs> to write this book. But I called her up and that began, there, there was kind of like a start and stop phase when I was very unsure of myself and totally doubted my ability to do it. And it took about a year for me to actually go over there and like visit her in Hollywood. I live in New York, so flying across the country. And she, she was so nice and she saved everything. She had like a house filled with like treasures from her late husband, Art Babbitt, and his, his entire life from his childhood to his time working in New York City in the roaring 20s to his early years at Disney in the golden age in the 30s. And afterwards, when he was at UPA, like I was finding like actual animation drawings in sequence, like flipping the drawings from his UPA animation, like Rudy Tutu, like these are famous 1950s UPA cartoons. And there were also personal things like personal photos and home movies and diaries and handwritten notes that he had done and letters from Disney and his like Disney ID card from 1936. It was really cool to sort of like get in there. And I was able to get to know him as a, as a man kind of, I mean, he had died in 1992. I never met him personally, but I like digging through all of his stuff that he had saved throughout his entire life was just such an intimate way to get to know him. And the more I learned about him, the more I began to identify with him. Like I was an animator and I'd worked in animation for 10 years for Nickelodeon and Disney Channel and, and a couple movies. 
but he was he was like the the ultimate version of everything I was. He was just like the magnified version of me. I was an animator, but he was like the animator. The animator. He he was like he, he was like a world changing animator. I was an activist, right? It's hard not to be an activist when you live in New York City. But he he led a monumental labor strike. Um, I was big into teaching and education. I think I started my. I, I taught like animation to some like kids after school, and I taught my first animation history class for college when I was twenty nine. And he really began teaching animation and like leading animation education programs while at Disney, and then after he was like the first teacher of animation back in the early 50s before anyone was teaching it in college. And then at Richard Williams Studio, he taught all those animators who ended up becoming the Who Framed Roger Rabbit animators. So like everything that I identified as qualities about myself in this realm, he was that times a thousand. So I'm opinionated, but he was super opinionated and I can be stubborn. And he was like so stubborn that it created this high drama between him and Walt Disney. He sued Walt Disney twice at the same time. And they almost got in a fist fight in a parking lot. I mean, like this is, this is a guy who thrives on drama. He just creates it wherever he goes. He, that made him so interesting to write about and research about. If he was just a humdrum, ho-hum sort of guy, there wouldn't have been a lot of momentum in the book, but he was just a firebrand. Just, there was like something lighting him up from the inside. And if it wasn't contained, it was going to destroy everything in his path. How this is such a not a loaded question, but it's a very dumb question. How difficult was it writing this book? Obviously, you've got firsthand to an extent with Barbara and you're going through all of this stuff. You're seeing the stuff that he had, the stuff she saved, everything from his life. How difficult was it separating yourself from him and trying to write this book as far as, I don't want to say an unbiased, an unbiased way, but I mean, how difficult was it to separate you from art and to write this book? Well, I knew I didn't want to make him the hero mm -hmm. because it's never as simple as good versus evil. Yeah. Um, I was coming, I don't think it's a big secret to say that I'm coming at this with a respect for unions and a respect for labor. Um, and I, and I think that there are ways to do it in a, in a way that produces a very healthy after effect and a very healthy relationship with your employer. Art Babbitt did it in such a way that his relationship with Walt Disney afterwards was totally shattered. Like it just exploded, it blew up in his face. Not so with some other employees who were much more mild mannered during the strike. They ended up having long careers at the Disney studio after the strike, but not art. Art, he was just super combustible. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to write something that, that wasn't good and evil, but it was about like a human relationship. Um, I think I received the advice and I pass it along to anyone who's listening, who likes to write that the story is not the story. The characters are the story. Mm -hmm. And this is true if you're writing a screenplay or if you're writing fiction or if you're writing nonfiction, like I did. So the story is not the Disney strike. That's what it says it is. But the story is really Walt Disney and Art Babbitt. 
and how this came to be and who they were. So I spend the first, I don't know, three chapters talking about how Walt develops his opinions and politics and stubbornness and stuff and anti-socialist stance. And I spent a couple chapters on, on how Art Babbitt became rooted in creativity like Walt Disney, but also rooted in his own opinions. And there are so many similarities between the two, like they will stand uh, so, so solid for their beliefs. They will be unwavering. Um, and they believe in creativity and they believe in this common dream of animation as an art form. And at the time it wasn't considered an art form by everyone. I mean, it was considered like a way to, to get rich quick by folks like Paul Terry, who Babbitt worked for, and other people who were just like churning out quantity over quality, right? People who were releasing films three times as fast as Walt and 10 times as crappier, right? Because people would watch anything at that time and theaters would buy anything. So art believed in something more, in animation as, as, as a true art form, as did Walt. And so they were kind of like, they were totally aligned and they were very congruent for a long time. Uh, and uh, I describe in the book how Art Babbitt really became like Walt's secret weapon. He was the most, he was the most significant artist at the Disney studio, just for all the innovations he brought in. He was able to get keys to unlock all of these mysteries. Like how do you animate a realistic moving cartoon character? Not traced, not rotoscoped, but how do you use realistic movement to inform your animation? And Babbitt had a film camera and he would, he would film his friends and he would film uh, his girlfriend who became his wife, who was the model for Snow White. Yeah. And he used that to inform his animation. And they were like, oh my God, this is how we'll animate Snow White. People were like, how do we add personality in animation? Art Babbitt was reading a lot about this new thing called method acting, which Hollywood was going nuts over. And he wrote this character, uh, this like character synopsis, this character analysis of Goofy, mm -hmm. sort of like get into his mind. And that was the key that unlocked personality animation. Uh, for a while, Disney animation, the quality was kind of like head to head with Fleischer and a bunch of other studios in the early thirties, but they propelled, they just like exploded through the roof in artistic style. That's because Art Babbitt brought the, an art school into the Disney studio and the art teacher, Don Graham, into the Disney studio because he knew the value of like figure drawing classes and knowing how to draw anatomy. And that started this whole in-studio in art school. So he's responsible for all of these things. And he was like the lead animator on all of these major characters, like the queen in Snow White, Geppetto in Pinocchio, uh, a, a bunch of dancing flowers and thistles and mushrooms in Fantasia. And he was just like really, he was just a really talented animator on top of all that. And he was the father of Goofy. If Freddie Moore is the father of Mickey Mouse and Norm Ferguson is the father of Pluto and Dick Lundy is like the person who gave Donald Duck his personality, uh, Art Babbitt is credited for sort of being the person behind bringing Goofy to life. Mm -hmm. So all of those things just heaped on itself to 
like without any question show that Art Babbitt is the most valuable thing at the Disney studio. And he is so aligned. He was like working overtime. He believed he, he would work at home on weekends. He just believed in his dream that Walt had. But then he saw that there was a kind of a lack of respect for the lowest employees. And there were, there was this, 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 really staunch refusal from the from the studio to bring in a union which was really confusing for him at first because every other like their every craft had a union screen actors guild screenwriters guild uh set painters had a union projectionists had a union office workers had a like everyone had a union except for the animation artists and then one by one the other studios brought in an animation artist union, and then Disney was the last one. So it was like the Disney, the studio was like the last holdout for animation unions. The only place where, the, where there was any craft that didn't have a union. And so they didn't think that was right. And there was, it. there's all this drama that kind of like built up on that. And at one point, Walt Disney is feeling that art is a that Art Babbitt is a like a turncoat, like he calls him. Um, what's like like someone who just like switched sides, and he feels that that Art Babbitt sort of abandoned him. Oh fuck! I, I think yeah. I just I think I just read that chapter too. It, it'll come back to me halfway through, and I'll yell it out, and I'll scare both of us. But we'll do it. Yeah. Okay. But you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. So Walt Disney's like Walt, Art Babbitt's a Benedict Arnold. And Art Babbitt's like Walt Disney is using us as stool pigeons. Like everyone's re resenting everyone else. And in the middle is the vice president of the company who is trying to placate the unionists, but also like do like his goal is to is to make Walt happy. Because if if he can make Walt happy, he's going to secure his position at the studio. And he kind of plays into Walt's fears and like leans into his biases. And instead of trying to really mediate, he just create, like he makes things worse, this guy, this vice president, whose name is Gunther Lessing. And he factors big in this whole story. That he does. And I'm rereading the second part where he starts, where his role, it's, it, this book seems like a telenovela, or it seems like the, 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 the what, what would my granny call them? Uh, her stories, the, uh, Love opera. Uh, they, the daytime dramas, the soap operas and stuff like that. That's what, this is what this reminds me of. This is like all of these big bombastic characters are coming in. Like you said, it's not about the strike. It's about the characters about this. Right. And one thing I wanted to circle back to that you had, that you had mentioned, you talked about those first three chapters where you're highlighting both art and Walt. Yeah. What I what I thought was so interesting, I'm so glad I remember this because I, I, I had this thought a few weeks ago and I'm like, fuck, I hope I remember this. Um, you made a distinct, I, I guess, choice to call them both Arthur and Walter. Why was Walt. that? Walt. Well, I call I call him Arthur until he starts going by the name Art Babbitt. So when, while he's a youth mm -hmm. and he's going by Arthur, I'm calling him Arthur because his dad is still in the picture. Right. Okay. And then when he like sort of like goes out on his own and 
he's only 16 when, when his dad has that tragic accident yeah. and then our rabbit has to become sort of the main breadwinner for the family. Um, so when he goes on, on his own to become that breadwinner, like he never went to school after the age of 16, just as like Walt Disney never went to school after the age of 15 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and both were, knew what it meant to work hard. Like their work ethics were insane. So yeah, after he decides to create like a business for himself and go out and like be, be a, like a working man at age 16, I call him Babbitt because mm-hmm. that's, that's the name that he goes by, even though his name is Arthur Babitsky. Yeah. I, I started calling him Babbitt at, at, at that point. And that's also the time when his, when his, his dad kind of like fades into the background. And as for Walt, he's Walter until he goes into the army. And then, and then when he comes back, he starts going by Walt. And that's when I started calling him Walt. Now, the only reason I asked that is because I, I, I figured that's what it kind of was. But I, I had this opinion, or not opinion, I had this thought, that like, maybe it was them becoming the person that they were ultimately going to be, if that makes any sense, right? So you start out, if your name is Richard, right? But you like going by Dick for some reason. Dick Williams, since we talked about who framed Roger Rabbit earlier. Okay. I don't really like that, man. You guys called me Richard as a kid. You know, I'm my own man. So that's what I thought it was. It was them becoming, like I said, that person. Or I'm no longer Walter. You can't call me Walter anymore. It's Walt, man, because Walter is my dad's name. Not really, but Walter was my dad's name. You can call me Walt. So that's what I figured it was kind of going that way. But I'm glad you broke it down for me because that was one of the first thoughts I had. I had made that post a note, like like I said, first couple pages. And I was like, man, I wonder if this was a conscious conscious thought or why he chose this way. But thank you for breaking that down. I really appreciate it. Um, When you were researching this book, was there anything that when you were looking just through the years and decades and decades of this drama between Walt Disney Studios, Walt himself and art um, that just made you go, this can't be real. And then when you start digging deeper into it, you're like, holy shit, this is real. Was there anything glaring or anything that really stuck out right off the bat with you? There were so many, so many crazy things that happened during and leading up to the strike mm-hmm. um, that is just unfathomable now. Like one thing is that at the time there were different unions fighting against each other Mm-hmm. to represent like one craft. So you'll have this union who wants actors against that union that wants actors, maybe a third union that wants actors. And they're all kind of like warring against each other. And maybe one of them is actually no joke run by gangsters. Yes. Because, right. I mean, you were saying before we recorded that you had a fantasy of being like a gangster and yeah, I wanted to be in prohibition, right? I wanted to be be in the mafia. I saw the first fucking three minutes of Goodfellas, and that's all I knew about the mafia when I was younger because that's when my grandpa would turn it off. So I thought the mafia when I was younger, they ate good food. Nobody, nobody messed with them. They got to drive cool cars. They got to stay up late and do whatever they wanted. I love pasta. I love the Italian culture. I took four years of Italian in high school, so I didn't have to watch the Godfather and subtitles whenever they would speak Italian. That's the <laughs> reason I took it. So I, I was super deep into this and I never knew the dark side of the mafia until I went a little bit further than those first two minutes of the Goodfellas. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, I had, I had goals or dreams when I was younger of being in the mafia until I found out what it really meant to be. Well, I think, you know, for people who find that fascinating, uh, the idea that you have like an Al Capone gangster who's a main player in this story, I think that's something that's really uh, something like something you can really sink your teeth into. And um, it's so interesting that at the time, you know, prohibition is over 
alcohol becomes legal, the mafia is looking for the next big score, and unions are brand new and they have very few regulations because they're so new. And so it was kind of like a, a seamless transition for them. Like they were like, oh, this came up at the right time, just as prohibition's ending, we have unions forming. If we control a whole bunch of, let's say, movie theater projectionists, we can go to the guy who owns the theater and say, I'm going to stop your workers from showing movies unless you give me $20,000 and maybe give them like a two cent raise. But yeah. more importantly, give me the $20,000. And so that's what a lot of these gangsters were doing. And Willie Bioff became like the king of being able to do this, mostly because he had the Al Capone syndicate backing him up. But um, Willie Bioff, he kind of becomes the head of the IATSE, which is a huge uh, like showbiz uh, union organization that is like the canopy of a bunch of other smaller uh, unions. And so he's, he's growing in his power beyond just uh, projectionists until he gets to Hollywood in the mid thirties and, and, you know, just like Capone, no one can pin him for anything. Uh, what finally got Capone, I believe, was his tax evasion. Um, yeah, tax evasion. Yeah. And um, if you know that about Capone, then you're in for a treat when you read about what finally did buy off in. But it became what, you know, Variety, the magazine calls an open secret mm-hmm. that Willie Bioff was uh, blackmailing studio heads, but he was getting like $500,000 in 1938, which is so <laughs> insane, insane. Uh, so when, when uh, Art Babbitt first goes to his managers, Walt's brother, Roy, and then Gunther Lessing, he, he goes to them because he wants to do something to block Willie Byoff, this gangster and his union, his his gangster-led union from organizing Disney artists and Disney cameramen and Disney employees. And so that's how like the first union was formed at Disney. It was formed in, in uh, cooperation between the vice president, Gunther Lessing, and Art Babbitt, this lead animator. And any union that is management-led, let alone co-led, is bogus by definition. You can't have management involved. You can't have a vice president involved with any employee organization. And Gunther Lessing, I mean, he he, he wasn't a bad lawyer. He was just um, trying to manipulate the, like a situation and trying to maintain control. He's playing he both knew, sides. Yeah. 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 So um, he was actually too good of a lawyer because he was like considered at the time like a top lawyer from his private firm when he led this he was like uh he worked down in texas maybe of any some texas uh listeners or watchers out there and he was the personal lawyer for uh pancho villa during the mexican revolution and following that he was the lawyer for dolores del rio the famed mexican hollywood movie star and and he totally like tried to destroy her because she wanted to cut their contract off early. And he was using all these dirty tricks and underhanded tricks. And, and, and he was blaming her for his divorce when his wife was accusing him of being an abusive husband. Like it was so gross and messy. 
And he never talked to anyone at Disney about that. Like that was all buried. I had to uncover a bunch of newspapers and a little bit about uh, Dolores Del Rio to find out that Gunther Lessing had this sordid past before he joined Disney. And here he is basically advising Walt on how to deal with his labor issue and trying to manipulate it from the inside. And it doesn't go well for Gunther because um, the union kind of uh, becomes its own thing. And he fights that tooth and nail and he becomes the mouthpiece for Walt Disney. And he becomes like the quote, like uh, labor negotiator for the company. And he's using a bunch of just like BS tactics to break the union. Um, and it must've been so hard for Art Babbitt who was kind of aligned with him with Lessing at first and now sees that Lessing is like out to like destroy this union that Babbitt thought was a totally okie dokie. Yeah. It's like I said at the beginning of this, it is an outstanding story. It's a crazy story. Like there's so many times in here where I have to put a sticky note in and then I have to Google it. I was like, I see it in the book. I have your sources in the back of the book, but it's just, it, there's so many things that make you go, what the fuck? Like it's crazy. Like in the forties, this was happening. It's just insane to see, like I said, the, the, the greed, I guess, I guess that's the biggest, the biggest thing I could take away just how, how, how hungry everybody was for money. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what really drives almost everybody these days is money. You know, you want to be financially stable. You want to make sure that your kids are set up. You want to make sure you're set up, you know, so to an extent I get it, but it's just how it drove such a wedge into Walt Disney studios with people that were friends. I mean, I think uh, Tom Cito had said it. he was like, people were friends one day and then they just broke up over this. It was like that. He was like, there was, and he didn't name anybody by name. You probably know some of the names and some of the stories that I'm going to, that I'm going to say, but he was like, they would want to fight. I mean, he on site, they would fucking want to throw hands. They were, it was like, you were against Walt or you were with Walt. The people that yeah. stayed with Walt were ride or dies. And, you know, it's just, like I said, it is insane. This book is so good. It's I'm reiterating the point for the 14th time. This book is so good. Uh, and like you said at the beginning, it really tells a story that needs to be told. Um, with that being said, man, we're going to take a, a detour for just a second, but if this gets yeah. turned into a movie, I got to imagine that this is this is something that could be turned into a movie. At least for me, I'd love to see this as a movie. Uh, who would you want to play as Art Babbitt? Who would you want to play as Walt Disney? <laughs> wow. And who's playing Jake S. Friedman? Is Jake S. Friedman going to play Jake S. Friedman? Or are we going to get a stand-in and get somebody else? Oh, you mean like... We're going to cut back and forth between the present day and oh, man, so cool. hey, man, this is this is your movie to make not mine I'm, I'm just curious to see what you're thinking man but yeah who would you want to see playing art babbitt who would you want to see playing walt disney oh my gosh nah walt disney yeah um you know i'm not really good at any sort of games where that require people to name movie star names like i'm oh, that's I like at six degrees of kevin bacon but if you, but if you Disney, like of, yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure. Um, we'll put a pin in it. We'll come back. I didn't mean to stump you like that. That was just one of those. I'm totally stumped. 
maybe maybe someone can suggest something in the comments if this is a YouTube video that grabs people. Yeah, so, really, ladies and gentlemen, drop it in the comments below. Tell us yeah. who you want to play Jake S. Friedman. Maybe Jake S. Friedman, like I said, plays Jake S. <laughs> who wants to play Walt and who wants to play Art? Man, but getting back to the book, man. Okay. You said you started this in 2007, correct? That's when you, that's when uh, yeah. he had said, hey, you're going to write this book. Yeah. When you start around there. Yeah. When, and do you remember what year you, you flew out to Hollywood to meet Miss Babbitt? Yeah, that was, that was the next year. Okay. So um, if we string all the years together between the initial um, announcement that I was going to make this book to, uh, to now it's been about 14 years and some of those years were, were dormant. Some of those years were looking for a publisher. Um, I kind of had to kind of part ways with one agent and I spent the pandemic getting a new agent and shortly thereafter got a decent publisher in Chicago Review Press. So some years were more active in research and writing than others. So maybe if you put it all together, if you compress all the time, it, it was about 10 years and, you know, still working full time, you know, that kind of thing. That is such a crazy time. Like when you think about it, 10 years, I just turned 33 a couple of weeks ago. I'm 23 at that point in time. I'm 23. I'm, I think I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, going to my third deployment at that point, man. So it, it's crazy to think that something when you look at the book and you look at how detailed you are and how thorough you are, I'd be like, yeah, this shit took 10 years, man. Um, but was, was there any point in time in this book where you, or when you were collecting the data and you were writing the stuff that you didn't want to do it anymore? I got to imagine there's probably some hard days in there in that 10 year, that 10 year time frame. But do you remember any time where you just like, fuck, I don't want to do this anymore? Not really. I no. mean, there were some days, well, there were some days where there was a lot of information. I just made sure that I was doing my best at organizing my information mm -hmm. uh, because it's easy to get overwhelmed when you have that kind of uh, like, it's, it was just piles of information and I, and all of it is like primary sources, yeah. like stuff from that time. Like I can't just abandon it. Um, I used, so I created a blog early on called Babbitt blog that helped me organize a lot of my research. And when I found something cool, I would put all the pieces together for that thing and make it a blog entry. Um, is that and, blog still live? Yeah, yeah. It's called, it's still live. It's called babbittblog.com. Yeah. You can check it out. There might be you know, some errors in it by now. I, maybe I hadn't polished all my research totally, but I, I would say it's like 99% accurate okay. at blog.com. And uh, I also use, you know, my calendar app on my, on my uh, computer. What is it called? Google calendar mm -hmm. to uh, just organize the events of the strike. So, you know, I typed in the date, May, 1941 and <laughs> the page flips to May, 1941. And I just plotted whenever I had an event whose day I knew or could estimate the span of time, I just plotted it on that calendar app. And, and I used that to sort of like create a timeline. And once I created a timeline, the pieces really began to fit together. I was able to course, like to like see the course of events and see how it started out small and just kept rolling like a snowball down a hill and get getting bigger and bigger and bigger 
because it didn't happen in a in a vacuum. You know, all this all the books talk about the strike happening, and this happened, and then that happened. But once I put each individual event on that timeline, the story really took shape, and I could see how feelings just got way out of hand from being friends to being bitter rivals. At any point in this book, did you have, now, obviously, like I said, 2007, this is quite some time after a lot of the folks that were involved in this are gone. I mean, I got to imagine, you know, firsthand sources as far as getting to meet people um, that would have, like I said, firsthand account of what happened uh, was pretty difficult and pretty scarce, man. Was there anybody else that you got to talk to one-on-one about this that might have lived through that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. I wanted to stay away from recollections if I could. Yeah. Because we're talking about memories 60, 70 years after the fact. And, um, you know, our memories aren't flawless. No. And when you're dealing with something as sensitive as the Disney strike, you know, that's really sensitive. The Disney company means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and this story is not sunshine and lollipops. Nope. You know? <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that, that the story I was telling was not recollections of people who had, you know, fostered bitterness in their hearts for 70 years um, or who had held biases that just grew and grew and shaped their recollections. I wanted to use primary sources, but having said that, it was really special to connect with the, uh, three, three uh, people of the golden age of Disney. Marge Champion, who at the time was Marge Belcher before she became Marge Babbitt. She was Art Babbitt's wife and the model for Snow White. Yes. And she was living in right here in Manhattan at the time. And I would visit her. I think, I think like three or four times I sat down with her and she was just like, so kind with her time and just really friendly. And there was like a spark of youthfulness in her that I can't describe, even though she was in her nineties, like she just like, it was really, there, there was something just really youthful about her. Um, and uh, Willie Pyle, he and I became very good friends. He uh, was Milt Call's assistant and his final project was, was Bambi. And he, he started at Disney in 1938. And, and Willie Pyle, he became more into like UPA after Disney. And then he became an independent artist here in New York. But he and I were just, he was such a good guy. And, and we became really good friends. And I think we met when he was like 96. And when he died like seven years ago, I think he was 102 and he was sharp as a tack the whole time. Wow. And I would just, I would call up, hey, Willie, what you doing? Can I come over? And he's like, yeah, sure, come on by. And I'd hop on my bike and I'd go down to see Willie Pyle and I would sit with him and maybe we would talk about art, like artwork and drawings. And, and we talked about drawing styles and he would show me what he was working on. He was still making art at the time. And we would talk about the strike sometimes, and we would talk about Disney sometimes. And I always had my audio recorder just catching whatever stories he had to share. So I'm so fortunate that I was able to have him as a friend, and I miss him. Yeah. And the third of these three people was Don Lusk, who I met once over an extended afternoon 
Um, and all of these folks have passed on by now, but at the time I think Don was 101. Also sharp as attack, Don Lusk was um, not a super high tier animator during the strike, but he was like a second tier lead animator. He animated Cleo, the fish from Pinocchio. He, so he was a supervising animator, just not a superstar supervising animator, but still a top, a top guy. Um, and he was just, he had memories and was like super, super great. There was just something so youthful about all these folks, all these creative folks in their nineties or who are a hundred. And I was just able to relate to them as one artist to another who just liked to hear their stories. And, um, there was something special that I can't put into words about connecting with a piece of history, like these people were, and just like sitting with them and knowing that like, this is, this is the person who was sitting at an animation desk animating Pinocchio, you know? Um, and, you know, for instance, there were stories that I wasn't able to put in because I couldn't triangulate my research. Mm-hmm. I want my book to be a good story. I wanted to tell an underdog story with very interesting characters, but I also wanted it to be a piece of scholarly work so that I can back up anything that I put in there. Um, if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, showing a side of the Disney company that isn't extremely bright and sunny, I don't want it to be like I'm throwing the company under the bus. I want it to be uh, backed up with real evidence. And so for that reason, I couldn't include any, any memories from, from people who were 70 years after the fact. I just couldn't trust that unless I had something to back it up. And Don Lusk told me something really interesting that his wife, Margie, was, who was working in the HR department at the time, which was called the personnel, the uh, personnel department. She was working right under this guy named Hal Adelquist, and he shows up in the book. Hal Adelquist basically became the anti-union witch hunter for the Disney company. He also had been at Art Babbitt's wedding because his wife and Babbitt's wife were best friends. And so they vacationed together. So they had this personal tie. And now he's like trying to like hunt unionists. And when the strike is over, uh, it was rumored that he kept different files for the staff who were once strikers and who were non-strikers. So Don Lusk says at age 101, he tells me that Margie, his wife, who's deceased, told him that uh, all, the per- all, all, the, all the staff were separated in, in the files from strikers and non-strikers and the people, whenever it was time to lay someone off, the people who would for, be first to lay, be laid off would be the ex-strikers. And I was like, that's, that's, that's interesting. And that's totally something that could be made up, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's no way to prove that. Um, and that sounds like something that, that people who had been embittered by the strike would start spouting and start to like, you know, smearing the Disney company with. Uh, but it could be true. I had no way of proving it. And I can't put something like that in the book as, as juicy as a detail that might be, there's no way to back that up. But then. But wait, there's more. But (laughs) hold that phone over in the cane maker 
collection at, at Bope's library. There's, there are a whole bunch of files that John Kmaker had gotten from Dave Smith back in the 70s. And back then, Dave Smith was head of the archives, the Disney archives. And uh, he was a lot more open about what things could be shared. And among them are like 12 or 15 uh, employee evaluations. And they're brutal, like really harsh, <laughs> really nitpicky and like insulting the stat, like their character. And above the photo of each employee is one of two words, striker or non-striker written in pencil. I was like, wow, they were totally discriminating. Don Lusk was right. Margie was right from beyond the grave. Now I could put it in the book. There's my evidence. So there's two things that I, I would love to go a little bit deeper into con or deeper into detail with you. Um, one is something we do whenever we have somebody on. And um, I've done this with uh, Christina Cavanaugh, you know, stories that come up with her and she's passed. Um, yeah. I've done this with James Avery. Uh, and I had some, a whole bunch of the turtle folks on what was their favorite story that they had ever got to do with James. Um, but since you had brought him up and you said you'd had such a close relationship <clears throat> uh, with Willie, um, do you have a favorite Willie story that you and Willie shared that you might like to share with the audience? I feel like this is something that we do to like immortalize the people that are no longer here that had touched some of the guests in, in a special way. <laughs> well, I mean, it has nothing to do with the book. Um, you know, Willie had worked on Fantasia mm -hmm. and it was really cool. Just one afternoon, he and I just sat down and watched a tape of Fantasia on, yeah. on, on his home entertainment system. Nothing big, just like a regular size TV, old school TV. Uh, and it, it was probably a, you know, VHS tape and a VCR, but we sat down and watched Fantasia. And I was like, I might be the last person who can ever watch Fantasia next to someone who worked on Fantasia. That's so cool. Yeah. And he was like saying, oh yeah, those cupids, I animated those cupids. I was like, was it hard? He's like, no, nah, they were pretty easy. Um, and he was just like wrapped. His attention was totally focused during the whole thing. He was enjoying it. And then watching the credits, he was like, then like the memory started to come back when he started to see the, the, the uh, credits roll. He's like, oh yeah, I didn't know so-and-so worked on this. <laughs> I forgot this person worked on that. Um, he, he was just like, so, I don't know. He had kind of like a childlike wonder about him. Like, he, he was not, he was not sarcastic. He was not bitter as, you know, many elders that we meet might be. He was just so, so warm and, and, and funny and just really clever and witty. And he had seen so much mm. um, and he had taken so many chances. He grew up in South Dakota in a sod house I was like, what's a sod house? He's like, oh, it's a house made of dirt. Like you lived in a house made of dirt. So yeah, it was a sod house. He, he like grew up on a prairie. He learned how to like hunt for food and, um, and then like made a leap to go to California when he saw an ad in the paper. If you can draw Mickey Mouse, you can get a high paying job at Disney's. This was after Snow White. So he was like, I'm going to do it. And he, and he did it. And, uh, I can't imagine what he's seen during his life from growing up in a sod house in like the teens, the 19 teens. 
and going to California when it was barely anything. Um, you know, at that time, my favorite Willie story has nothing to do with animation, but like <laughs> at that time, uh, maybe around 2013, there was some sort of so-called prophet who was talking about the world ending. Yeah. You know, I feel like every eight years, there's another person. Yeah. And, and he was getting a lot of press and, um, and I turned to Willie and I said, Hey, Willie, what should we do if the world is going to end? And he said, guess I should put on my hat. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Yeah. He was just so, so great. Um, and he, he, and he just kept drawing and he, and he never stopped drawing. Um, when you live to be that age also, like he had memories from the fifties and sixties and he was like, Oh yeah, this thing that I did. And he just kind of like pass it off handed. He, he showed me a sketchbook that was sitting on a shelf from like 1956, the way that like you or I might show like a notepad from last April. Yeah. You know, and when you live to be a hundred, like decades just fly by. And, and, uh, and he let me have some of his drawings and, you know, there's some of my most pre precious uh, items in my personal collection, just drawings from, from Willie Pyle. In Walt Disney's house, like a private family owns Walt Disney's house on, on uh, Woking Way in California. It was the house that, that he had from, uh, for, for like, a good 20 years, maybe 30 years. Um, and it's been open to visitors when the owners let it be open to visitors and tours. And the walls are decorated with like original Disney animation art, maybe a drawing of like Jiminy Cricket or like a cell from Snow White or something. And in that house is a Pinocchio drawing from Willie Pyle. And I recognized it instantly. And there's a signature on the bottom. So his drawing is in Walt Disney's house. He was the assistant on Pinocchio. He was one of the assistants on, on the character Pinocchio. And he, and he also drew me a Pinocchio on a tablecloth, on a white tablecloth that I, like a paper tablecloth that I saved. Um, not that it's like worth anything more than, you know, more than a memento, but when you, encounter a human piece of history, someone who like helped shape your personal fabric like that. You just want to hold on to as many pieces as you can. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing those stories. And I've got a funny tablecloth story. It's going to make me look like an asshole for trying to match your tablecloth story to my tablecloth story. However, uh, I think it's fun because I, I don't think I've ever told the story to anybody. So uh, I cook for a living now. That's my day job. Uh, I've wanted to cook since I was, I want to be a chef since I was 12. I love food just as much as I love animation, just as much as I love the NBA. I love food, right? Uh, so for my 18th birthday, my mom was like, hey, what do you want to do for your 18th birthday? And I was like, I would love to go to Emerald Lagasse's restaurant in Orlando, Florida. This is when he still had a, when he was Emerald live was still huge. Um, he was on every food network show. He was yeah. the guy, right? So that was the guy that got me into cooking. 
right? And there's a bunch of crazy dates. The first episode I ever watched of Emeril Lagasse was a tribute show to Julia Childs, one of my all-time favorite people in the world. She's my hero, one of my heroes. And uh, I didn't realize that she had died that day, right? So she died, I believe it was either 2003 or 2004, but she died on my birthday, August 13th, right? And I remember seeing this episode and it wasn't until years later that if, if Emerald doesn't see Julia, Emerald doesn't get into cooking. If I don't see Emerald, I don't get into cooking. So vis-a-vis, I'm already into Julia because we shared this, this connection from watching this episode. At least I was watching this episode. But flash forward, and uh, I'm going to Emerald Lagasse's, uh, Emerald Lagasse's restaurant, right? My brother-in-law's there. My sister's there. My mom's there. We're all enjoying it. I get taken back in the kitchen. I'd never seen a professional kitchen before. So the chef is the biggest fucking person I've ever met in my life. He was six foot eight. He was like 270, 280 pounds. He was huge. Right. And I'm six foot two, but he was a huge person. And I'm looking, I'm like, dude, how do you, how do you function being this big? He was like, well, I got to walk through a lot of these doors sideways because everybody else is so small. These doors are only so big because he, he played football or some shit like that. And he was a, he was a sports guy before he got into cooking. Um, so when I'm doing the tour, my brother-in-law is sitting there right and they're completely out of their depths with food they don't give a shit like it's like calories in calories out they don't fucking care if it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or if it's a creme brulee they don't give a shit right so while i'm away you know getting the tour and stuff like that i come back and then you know we finish eating uh i can tell you the meal i had the the dessert i had i can tell you what i was looking i can that that experience is just ingrained in my head that'll never leave me at all so as we're leaving you know, my mom's paying the bill and she's asking me, should you have a great time? And I was like, I had, this is awesome. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. So my, uh, my, my brother-in-law, his name is James. So he comes over he's like, Hey, I got something for you. I was like, well, what'd you, what'd you get me? He's like, no, we got to do it outside. Right. And I was like, okay. So he opens, opens up like his little, like his little hand. He's like, you see that? And I was like, yeah, it's a white towel. He's like, yeah, yeah. It's an emerald napkin. He's like, I took it for you. So you can have this as a momentum or a momentum or whatever it's called. Uh, I don't know. Just, he's like, you can put this into your, your, your collection or whatever. And I was like, that's kind of weird. I don't have any tablecloths collection. He's like, it's not the point. You're not getting what I'm getting you. He's like, this is your guy. He was like, this is what I'm giving you for your birthday. I was like, you stole something. He was like, dude, just fucking take this, this tablecloth that I gave you, man. It is, it's to symbolize you. He's like, you'll, you'll enjoy it 10 years down from the road. So the year that they go to close, uh, Emerald Lagasse's restaurant closes in Orlando. It's down there in the Universal City Walk. It closes a couple years ago. I think it closed either right at the pandemic or right before the pandemic. And uh, I have this tablecloth or this napkin with me, right? I still have this white fabric napkin. And then I, I hear they're closing. So I take this napkin with me because we, we've got tickets to Universal and Islands of Adventure every year. I take this napkin with me and I take it into Emerald's restaurant. And they're, you know, breaking everything down. They're starting to close down. They've got a couple more services before the restaurant closes. So I go up to the hostess. I'm like, look, this is going to sound really weird, right? About 12 years ago, 13 years ago, whatever it was, my brother-in-law stole this, stole this napkin from you because Emerald is such a huge part of my life. And he wanted me to remember, remember this for the rest of my life. And she was like, yeah. And like I said, she's probably like 18, 19. She does not give a shit, right? They're closing the restaurant down. She doesn't fucking care. And I was like, I would like to give this back to you. And she was like, you're going to give me a napkin that is old. And I was like, 
listen, he stole it from this restaurant. I'm trying to give it back. I'm trying to do the right thing because I felt bad about this for years. And she was like, dude, we're, we're literally closing down in three services. I, I don't have anywhere to put this. Just take it with you. So I fucking, I folded it like an American flag, like I was trained to do in the military. And I left it on the steps of Emeril Lagasse's restaurant. I don't know what happened to it, but I just felt like I had to give it back, right? Because it felt weird. So like I said, this is the first time somebody's brought up a tablecloth story. I didn't mean to shit on your amazing story with my horrible one, but I just thought it was pretty cool. Um, that's, that's great. That tells me that you're a man of honor. I try to do the best that I can with what I got, man. I, I really try to be a good person. That's all I can really do, man, because I can't, I have no control over whatever else happens. If I can do more good than I do bad. I feel like I'm kind of winning in a sense. Yeah. Right. So, but it was just something I had to kind of get, get out of me. I just, I didn't want it anymore. You know, I wanted it, but I just didn't want it anymore. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you know man, who would love you. Yeah. Art Babbitt. Yeah. 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 He was a man of principles and yeah. he was, yeah. And he was a man who, who, who did whatever he could for what he believed was right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that he existed. I'm glad that he pushed this. And the last question before we kind of start to do the wrap up here, um, we brought it up a couple of times and they're extremely, I want to make sure I say this right right way, litigious, right? Disney company, right? Uh, They are very difficult to work with in a sense that they don't want anybody using their licensed characters. They don't want anything. I mean, I, I think right here, this book is independently authored and published right under here. Cause I mean, it's very difficult to get Disney to really do or say anything because it's Disney, right? They're the biggest right. company in the world. Um, so they don't have to do anything they don't want to do. Um, but when you're writing this book, do you have anybody pushing back as far as Disney goes, Hey, you really can't write this. Did they leave you alone? I don't know if that's too sensitive a question to ask you, but I, like I said, I just know they're a very litigious company. I'm an open book. You can ask me anything. AMA. Um, I wanted to be above board with the company. Mm-hmm. You know, here it says, yeah, this book is independently authored and published. That's what Chicago Review Press insisted to be on the cover. I'm like, that kind of looks like I'm publishing the book. And he's like, no, my publisher said, we have to put that there just to make it clear that this is not a, Disney sponsored book. Yeah. And that kind of is a selling point because if it was sponsored by Disney, we would have a lot less freedom about what we could put in this book. Yeah. Um, So the Disney company has no problem licensing some of their images. They can charge you 150, maybe somewhere between zero dollars and 150 or 200 or 300 dollars to license an image i mean it cost me 150 dollars i think to license a photo of uh george brown who is willie byoff's accomplice that was from the associated press so there are organizations that have collections of images that are used to licensing their images i didn't spend any more money than i had to but i just needed that photo yeah. Um, when it came to Disney artwork, um, I contacted the company and I said, listen, um, I will have this book coming out sometime next year. Can we talk about images? And uh, the rep that I was in touch with was like very eager to see what I was writing, but didn't really get back to me about helping me at all. Didn't get back to me about holding me back either. Yeah. 
they just probably wanted to see what was like what this whole thing was about. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I actually didn't have any help with any of the uh, images from Disney. It would have been great if I could have had a picture of Goofy or a picture of the Snow White Queen or a picture of uh, Geppetto from Pinocchio. But in the end, my publisher was saying, he said, Jake, there were too many pictures in this book already. Like I gave you an allotment of 20 images and you far exceeded that already. So any more images, people know what Goofy looks like anyway. People know what the Snow White Queen looks like anyway. Um, If not, then they won't be picking up this book to begin with. Uh, I said, okay, okay. Um, When like, when it came to fair use, like fair use lets people get away with a lot of stuff, especially if I'm writing nonfiction and I'm sort of reporting on something that happened. I'm basically a news reporter of an event that happened 80 years ago. So uh, in reporting on these events, I'm allowed to use certain images for fair use. You know, uh, there's a picture of Mickey Mouse that Art Babbitt drew for an independent humor magazine, uh, a copy of which I personally own. And apparently if you own the artwork, you can, you know, print it. It's, it's yours to really? do that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to go overboard with Disney images. Like I used a piece of like, uh, uh, what do you call it? I think it's called a theater. There's some sort of like publicity material. Like you can print movie posters. You can print any press material or publicity material. That's fair use. You don't need Disney's permission to print anything like that. Um, and I, and that's where the picture of the three little pigs came from. That was like a Disney uh, uh, lobby card is what it's called. A lobby card. It's like, it's like a piece of press material, something that you would use to advertise. Um, so theoretically, I could have used lobby cards for everything. I could have found a goofy lobby card. I could have found a Pinocchio lobby card. But I didn't want to go overboard with Disney images. And I didn't want to show... Like, I didn't want to make it about, like, the Disney core characters. I think that would have gotten me in some trouble. Um, I, I was just doing it, you know, judiciously. The drawing of Abner, the drunken mouse, complete with the peg holes at the bottom of the page. I wonder if I can find it here for your, for your viewers on the YouTube channel. I actually saw that on eBay, and I was like, this is directly related to the story that I have in here of Art Babbitt and Walt Disney in a story meeting. So there's, there's that page. So I saw it on eBay and I bought it. Actual, I bought it. The actual piece of art or a picture of it? No, the actual piece of art, the actual animation really? drawing. And I thought that this will be like my birthday present to myself. I will buy this piece of art and because I own it, I can put it in the book. And, and it's relevant to this particular scene. And it's a, it's a drawing by Art Babbitt, or at least one of his assistants, but it's, but it's from an Art Babbitt scene. And I just needed to have at least one drawing, like an actual graphite on paper drawing of an Art Babbitt animation scene in here. Not just like finished artwork, but not, 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 a, not a frame of film, but a drawing because this is not a story about films. It's a story about artists, the people who are pushing the pencils 
and brushes. So, um, so I, I, that's how that got in, but everything was fair use. I got no pushback from Disney. I got no active help from Disney. They were just sort of on neutral ground. Like they were Poland is what they sounded like. Yeah. Or <laughs> okay. Better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't want to be sued by Disney because, you know, as I said, I have a relationship with the company. I had already written a book about the Disney afternoon yes. for Disney editions. Um, COVID kind of put a halt, a big pause on that right before the pandemic hit, like we were almost ready to go to print. And then um, suddenly everything was closed. We were like a couple of months away from final edits on that Disney afternoon book. So it's still on a shelf somewhere on a digital shelf somewhere. And I, if any listeners are curious about the Disney afternoon book, uh, I've, I, I was told that it is forthcoming. I cannot say when though. I don't know when, like if, if anyone wants to know, I guess I'll, I'll announce it on my Twitter and Instagram because people are just as eager as me to find out when the Disney afternoon book is coming out. So, um, Find me there. Find me on Jake at, at Jake S. Friedman on either of those things. And you'll be the first to know. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to that one too. Um, and, you know, like I said, we're, uh, we're winding down here and there's a couple questions that uh, we like to end everything with. Yeah, shoot. So if you had a Mount Rushmore, you got four uh, people, uh, right? And then you have an honorable mention. Oh. And since you're in the animation field, we're going to stick it with the animation, right? Who okay. would be on your Mount Rushmore and who would be your honorable mention? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, this is the tough hitting questions that I like asking because it makes people think. And then when you guys go out and give names, I get to be uh, diligent and I get to go research these folks too. So I get to learn something from your picks as well. Okay. Wow. 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 Oh goodness. I don't, I don't know. Well, Art Babbitt, I would definitely put up there for all those reasons that I already named. Um, I, I would put Mary Blair up there for being such an innovative designer. I think she had just like a supreme use of just color and design and appeal. Um, outside of Disney, I think I, oh, we're just talking about four. Um, my goodness. I don't know. There's, I can't. I can't go beyond, no, I refuse. I refuse. There's so many. I'm thinking of like over at Warner Brothers. There's like Tex Avery and Chuck Jones and Bob Clampett and like over over at MGM, you know, um, more Tex Avery and uh, Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. And um, even Walter Lance gets some love. I think Windsor McKay definitely actually probably deserves to get up there. Um, uh, I think Lotte Reiniger deserves to get up there for being the first person to make a, an animated feature film. Um, I think, you know, we can travel to Europe and we can travel to Asia and we can name all of these like innovators in, in animation. I, I, I think Miyazaki deserves a place up there. It's a, it's a tough I question. Can't. This is one of my favorite questions to ask too, because I love not only stumping you guys, but like I said, you, you threw out a bunch of names there that when I go back and I listen to this episode, 
once once I get done recording, I generally go back and I listen to the episode. That way I can pull any information. It's like, fuck, dude, why didn't I just, why didn't I go a little bit deeper into this question? Why didn't I do this? But I also like pulling these names because, like I said, I get to get more well-informed myself because I'm very new as far as the nuts and bolts to animation. I've been a fan of cartoons since I was a little kid, like most people. Um, so it wasn't until just these last couple of years where I've really, like I said, it started with uh, of Mice of Magic. This is where it started for me. And then just it's dovetailed into your book, into Tom's books, into the art of books, anything that I can get my hands on that I can sit here and devour and just try to pull as much information and put it up here as I possibly can. I love doing this stuff. So like I said, that's why I like that question. The second one is uh, this is your book recommendations. Obviously, we've got, ladies and gentlemen, you got to get this book for sure. Um, but if there is two books that you think any fan of animation or ever, anybody working in the animation field should have on their shelves what are two books that you would recommend oh two books well anyone who wants to know about animation i think um animator survival kit is a great one by richard williams um i think uh the illusion of life of course by frank and ollie is a great one for me the 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 books that, that influenced me the most were the two books by Seamus Culhane, mm -hmm. which is Talking Animals and Other People, which is kind of his memoir, and Animation from Script to Screen, which talks about like how it's done. Because as far as I've seen, Seamus Culhane is the only author of a book on animation who talks about like the psyche of the artist. And he kind of like pulls from the artist's way and he pulls from drawing on the right side of the brain which are two great books about art and how to really train yourself to do better. Um, and that really shaped, that, that changed everything for me, reading, reading that and, and learning how to, basically how to get into the zone. Like the zone is not elusive. You can get there. You can create a, an environment that will put you in the zone, yeah. you know, and James Colhane talks about how to do that. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, those are the recommendations for this week. Um, and the last one, now this is another hypothetical. I try to stay away from these, but I'd be remiss not to ask you since you wrote this beautiful book on this topic. Um, if you could have a time machine and you can go back to win this dispute and this disdain for both Art and Walt for each other started uh, mm -hmm. and you could tell them anything, what would you tell them? Oh my God, I would tell Walt don't trust your vice president. <laughs> He's just out for himself. Um, I would probably say find someone who specializes in union disputes to handle this and not this guy. Let him stick to what he does best, which is, I don't even know, <laughs> helping Roy. Let him do that, but don't, lead, don't let him lead the charge here. And for art, I would tell Art Babbitt, I would say, um, listen, let's say, okay. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. There would have been no stopping him. If the strike had already started and I go to him and I say, please calm the heck down, stop yelling at people. You're going to make enemies and you're making this more bitter than it has to be that wouldn't have worked because he felt so slighted already. And rightfully so, like he had kind of been crapped on by the company and been attacked personally. 
um, it would have been, but like his fire was needed to start the strike. That's the weird thing. Like he was the fuel that got everything going. Um, and I don't think it would have happened without him. So, uh, I think, I think I still would have tried to listen, writing a book like this is kind of like going in a time machine. And I really wanted to replicate that experience for my readers. I wanted you, Julian, to feel like you were like walking into 1941, like you were wearing your spats and fedora and you were there with those guys. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, what, what would you have said to Art Babbitt at that time? Dude, I don't know, because there's so many similarities that I see in myself that I see in him. I'm extremely stubborn. Once I have, I'm very quick to admit when I'm wrong and I'm very quick to admit when I do not know something. However, if I have something like art had it here, I will die on a hill. If I think, if I think that the way I'm thinking is, is right, it's just, um, there's no other option. I will die on that hill. Um, so I don't think there's anything that I could have said to him while it was in the heat. Maybe if I had, you know, if I'm armchair quarterbacking it and saying, if I could go back a week before it really hit critical mass or really hit the nuclear option, I'd be like, Hey man, you're really going to regret this. I'd pull Walt and both are in there. Like, look, there's so many things that are similar. Walt, you want what's good for this company. Art wants what's good for this company. That's why he's working so long. That's why he's working so many hours. They want recognition. They want better pay. They want equal pay. You know, it's just all these things that I think we're taking, not so much out of context, but they were taking, oh, he doesn't want to do this or he doesn't want to do that. They don't see this, but they don't see that. I would try to find some kind of similar ground that they could kind of agree on. You know, hey, man, let's go out and eat dinner. Everybody likes pizza, right? So let's just talk over this shit. Really work it out. Try to keep all of everybody outside that wasn't Walter Art so they could physically, not physically because I don't want them to punch each other, but they could work it out, you know, man to man, and they could see where each other's coming from. I would just try to play the mediator the best possible way I could do. You know, that's probably what I would do. I think if anyone could have done it, you could have. Ah, man, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe being uh, would have helped. Yeah, it, I'm, like I said, I hearing so many of these stories, because like I said, when I had Tom on and I heard what he was writing about with his and I've read yours, it's just I really think they needed somebody that had no stake in the game. Right. They weren't going to get rich off of if they joined the IATC. They weren't going to get rich off of they just stayed with Walt. I really think <clears throat> they needed somebody that had no vested interest in either side to really say, hey, 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 hey. You guys both want to do the best you can do with the art, with the pictures, with the animation. You guys have the same goals. You're just, it's like the political spectrum, right? I try not to get political, but there's a lot of politics in this book. So it's topical. Um, you know, if, if we saw each other for, we all want to make sure our kids are going to be set up for the future. We all want to make sure that everybody's treated equally. We all want to make sure this, that, and the other. We all have a lot of similar outlooks on life i guess maybe not really but it's just like we all are striving for the same thing we all want to be better we all want our kids to grow up in, in, a, in a clean environment uh in a safe environment you know so i feel like if we started pointing out and highlighting each other's likes vices their dislikes or what drove them apart i really think that this you wouldn't have wrote a book about it if, if we could go back in time is what i'm really getting at man if we could really set them down and say hey don't 
don't go nuclear right now. Just talk this shit out. That's the way I think. I mean, it's a lot of word vomit there, but you know, it's just, it's really sad seeing, seeing this type of stuff, seeing Art Babbitt, essentially what you were saying earlier, you know, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth, but kind of erased from history almost. Right. And I didn't know, not anymore, man. Um, And I didn't really know anything about this entire topic until I posted uh, you brought up the illusions of life earlier, but I posted a, a picture of me. I've, I've always wanted to buy this book. And then last year I bought the illusions of life or earlier this year, I bought the illusions of life. And I posted on Jerry Beck's, um, uh, on his Facebook group, cartoon research. I'm like, I'm so happy. I got this book halfway through it and all this other stuff. And then somebody had put in a comment said, Hey, that looks like the revised edition. I was like, well, what's the, what were they revised? And he was like, Oh, they essentially took out all of Don Bluth, John Palmer and all that stuff. And I was like, Really? And I didn't know anything about that. And this is when I kind of figured out or found out that um, people like to erase parts of history that doesn't align with what they're really going for. You know, and I didn't know that happened as, as naive as that sound. I didn't know that that happened. And then I started asking all these questions for Jerry and Tom and just a whole bunch of people that were around know this. Um, and I was really blown away. And like I said, the labor strike came up and then this book came up and it's just, it's a, it's a shitty kind of world, man. When you look at, when you look at this, you know, from a, from an outsider's perspective, it's really, really disheartening. It's really sad at the end of the day, man. So like I said, I'm glad this book is out there. I'm glad, you know, no matter what anybody can say or can do or try to take away from Art Babbitt, like you said, at the beginning of the show, man, the father of Goofy, right? He broke that character down from a psychological standpoint. He made that character what it is, Um, you know, so, like I said, I'm grateful for your time tonight, man. I'm grateful for this book. Anytime you want to come back on, what was the book you were you were you were talking about? Disney Afternoons, is that what you said? Disney Afternoon. That that will be out at some point, but we don't know when. We don't. I, but it will be out at some point. It's forthcoming. So stay tuned on the Twitters and the Instagrams to get the deets. Beautiful, man. I'm looking forward to being able to pick that one up too, and I'd love to have you back on anytime you want to come back on and just chat animation. Like I said. Thank you again for your time. Thank you again for this book. Um, one more time, where can the fans find you if they want to reach out and say, hey, I love your book, man. Twitter and Instagram, what was your handles? My handle's at Jake S. Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Beautiful. And yeah. then do you have any websites or anything like that you would like to plug to? Well, if, if people are into this book or want to know more about The Disney Revolt, they can go to thedisneyrevolt.com where I just put up a bunch of cool stuff from my research that inspired the book uh it's uh you can dive as deeply as you want but um there's like a who's who there's a timeline and there's a bunch of really cool like court research courtroom research that shows actual testimony of babbitt of walt disney and of like tons of directors and a bunch of evidence and a bunch of really cool reenactments of actual conversations that happened during that time that's really cool, man. Like I said, thank you again for your time. Uh, he's been Jake. I've been Julian. This has been the What's My Head podcast, and this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night. My guest next week is the co-director of Mulan and legendary Disney animator, Tony Bancroft. Enjoy the teaser. What was it like seeing Mulan out in the wild with a completely, just a whole civilian crowd? They had no animators in there. <clears throat> what was that like? What was that feeling that like? That was... Um nerve-wracking i would say it's probably the first thing i would think of because we're, one of our very first screenings was uh and you know after the movie comes out you do what's called a press junket and you take the movie around and you let 
press see it from different territories. So we had a um, one of our first press tours was um, yeah in the United States we did one, but we took it to China and our most nervous screening was in Hong Kong because this was the first time that a true Chinese audience was going to be seeing what we these Westerners these white guys made out of this Chinese girl's tale, which is beloved you know the story of Mulan is a beloved tale um, in China and it's that's really her you know China's daughter really yeah. in a lot of ways so they really it's it's valuable to them it's impactful for them they hand it down as a, a, a kind of a moral lesson to kids in school they, they've done songs about Mulan I mean you name it um, we saw statues to Mulan in China so to play it for them we just thought oh my gosh they're gonna what if they stone us you know what if, what if they send us to jail or they don't let us leave the country without torturing us first i don't know i mean we were just like you know this could really go poorly you know we have no idea at that point what people are going to think from china yeah um thankfully it, it ended well the, the the lights came up and there was a huge response after the movie was over but during the movie we were like uh, oh, here comes a funny part, and they wouldn't—they wouldn't respond because they were—they're not really too vocal in China at the time, anyway. When they would see funny parts in movies, they wouldn't respond very much. You know, um, they weren't—it wasn't—it just wasn't like a U.S. audience where we we're more vocal about things and stuff. Um, so we didn't know how it was going to go until the lights came up, and then there was big applause. You know, and yeah. we could tell that they really liked it. And, um, and since then, that's been the best, really kind of most gratifying. Um, audience and people that have said that they've liked the movie has been Chinese. I have a, a pastor at my church uh, who is uh, 100% Chinese. Um, and he told me once, uh, uh, kind of took me aside and said, I, I have to tell you that Mulan was hugely impactful for me in my relationship with my father. Um, and that meant a lot to me. But I've also, I remember at an early screening, a father of a daughter came up to me and he says, I didn't think I would ever have, um, because of Chinese culture and that kind of feeling of you can't really hug your kids or show a lot of affection. He says, I didn't know that I'd be able to ever enjoy, you know, um, <clears throat> a very emotional connection with my daughter until I took her to go see Mulan. And after that, I felt a freedom to, to hug my daughter. And he says, wow. we've been hugging, uh, you know, our, the rest of our lives. And and I said, he said, I, I have a different relationship, a better relationship with my daughter because of Mulan. So thank you. And he was crying. Yeah. And, um, you know, so things like that are like, whoa, you just don't know. You just don't know when you're making these films, how they're going to impact anyone, let alone the world or have a cultural impact. It's just to this day, it's very surreal. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, drop us a rating on Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you're listening. It helps us out tremendously, and I'll see you guys next week.